Digital Drift Episode 2, recorded Wednesday, 29th of January 2014, Robocop. Deep discussion and entertaining analysis of movies, games, and media culture. Welcome to the Digital Drift. Originally, we had intended to make this the Robocop Trilogy episode, but Sharon and I found so little of any cinematic value in the two sequels that I suspect our focus will mainly be on the original. As for the remake, if it merits a show, we'll talk about it later. With us is Neil Taylor of Gameburst. Hello, Neil. Hello. And welcome to your first Digital Drift. Thank you. Although I'm now wondering at what point did you realise that we shouldn't bother with the other two? Somewhere in the middle of three, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's fine. It wasn't... Yeah, actually, technically, I think I finished three before you guys because you paused it for an hour. Yeah, I paused it for an hour to finish The Legend of Zelda uh, A Link Between Worlds, which is much better than watching Ro- Robocop 3. Yes, it was. <sighs> More on that in a bit. The original Robocop was a small, low-budget, R-rated 1987 sci-fi shot on a budget of $13 million. It originated in a Blade Runner-inspired script written by Edward Neumeyer. When we say Blade Runner-inspired, he literally heard about Blade Runner as a cop who hunts robots and thought, what about a robot who hunts criminals? Rejected by Dutch director Paul Verhoeven. Then later reintroduced to him by his wife, who saw the clever, nasty, but oddly uplifting story within. Verhoeven had directed seven movies since 1971, mostly in Dutch, and was best known for the Rutger Hauer movie, Flesh and Blood. This film made him a Hollywood player and led to Total Recall, Starship Troopers, The Hollow Man and Black Book. It also, inadvertently, led to Basic Instinct and Showgirls. Culturally speaking, this movie fused with the mythology of the Terminator with a significant influence on the next ten years' worth of cyborg-related science fiction movies, TV, comics and video games. Can I just... um, Have you guys ever seen the original trailer to Robocop? I think we could probably play it now. We get the best of both worlds. The fastest reflexes modern technology has to offer onboard computer-assisted memory and a lifetime of on-the-street law enforcement programming. It is my great pleasure to present to you... Robocop. This guy's really good. He's not a guy, he's a machine. Old Detroit has a cancer. Cancer is crime. Let the woman go, you are under arrest. You you better back up, pal! Your move, creep. What are your prime directives? You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. And it's just shit! Anything you say may be used against you. A cyborg, you idiot! You recorded every word you said. You're dead. We killed you. His memory is admissible as evidence. You're gonna have to kill it. Get in the car, for God's sake! <laughs> Robocop, the future of law enforcement. What was it we watched the other day that had some Terminator reference that I got really cross? Um, it wasn't the Marine, was it? Uh, it was Terminator 3. <laughs> <laughs> Rise of the Machines. Right, <laughs> 
No, it was Planet Terror. Oh, yeah. He turned her into Sarah Connor and the bride. Well, yeah, yeah, he referenced the bride and Sarah Connor. Later. Fuck off, Rodriguez. You do not have that right. Not in this piece of shit. Yeah. And it's still better than Death Proof. I prefer Death Proof. I prefer Death Proof. I'd rather watch Planet Terror. I, I didn't like either of them, but of the two, I was less bored during Death Proof. Although most people would agree, it was even Mark Comode agreed with you, Neil, that uh, Planet Terror is better. Death Proof did not make me hate, and also I had Rosaria Dawson to look at, which was a little bit of a saving grace. Mm. Let's compromise. Watch Jackie Brown. Yeah, and we all just kill Bill. Indeed. Like, how many times do we have to say Kill Bill's good? Anyway, the original film on a budget of 13 million made 53 million, which equated to a huge success back in the day. Its sequels were The Law of Diminishing Returns writ large. First, they tried, let's spend more money, hoping more people will come. Robocop 2 was made in 1990 for more than twice the budget at 35 million, and took a mere 45 million back. They then tried making it family friendly on a cut budget. That kind of creative and financial suicide that Hollywood seems doomed to forever repeat. Robocop 3 dribbled out in 1993, priced at $22 million. It made a pathetic... Neil? It made a pathetic... Really? Viewing experience for everybody concerned. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It it was 10 million. Well done. Uh, And it shat... $12 $12 million down the sacrificial sequel potty and feebly signalled the end of the series in cinemas until 24 years later in 2014 when the remake Nobody Wanted emerged, costing $130 million. So, to get us started, how is Robocop's socio-political satire similar in tone to the best of the Grand Theft Auto series? And does it ever go too far? First and most prominently, the whole thing starts with a uh, cruelly observed satirical commercial. Is it time for that big operation? This may be the most important decision of your life. So come down and talk to one of our qualified surgeons. Here at the Family Heart Center, we feature the complete Jarvik line. Series 7 Sports Heart by Jensen. Yamaha, you pick the heart. Extended warranties, financing. Qualifies for health tax credit. And remember, we care. And the radio stations and everything from GTA 3 onwards have been packed with that kind of black mirror to American life. The first time I saw the Star Wars Christmas special complete with ad breaks, Mm -hmm. this is what I thought of. And at the time, I think I kind of thought that the ads had been put in as part of the comedy fighting the frizzies at 11 <laughs> indeed which kind of points out a how much of an impact this had on me and b how well put together these new segments and ads were i mean it, it, they seem extremely realistic for american tv at the time so there's not just that, but it's, there, there is, uh, obviously in, in both GTA and, uh, Robocop, uh, two things that I, th- I feel, um, share very, very similar tones. Uh, there is an undercurrent of savage violence. It outlines very clearly the ones committing the violence and the ones, uh, having the violence perpetrated against them, the downtrodden and the, uh, treadies. 
I think Robocop actually ends up because of the, there's a slightly um, I'm going to say this uh, quite a lot there's a slightly childlike way to the uh, the, the manner that uh, Verhoeven directs uh, which is odd to say this but uh, he idealises things in that Murphy is just so nice such a nice guy and the villains are so evil and so cackling and, 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 and insane that the whole thing seems like an allegory anyway so it allows you to see it as uh, metaphorical rather than taking it absolutely seriously well, the, my title for my notes on this particular section is Capitalism Sucks. Yeah. But it was also a reflection of what the capitalism was sort of in the 80s mm. as well. You know, it was quite a highly driven, uh, scumbag-filled, drug-addled time. Yeah. Maybe it's just in hindsight that it's... Because I, I was saying that it, it's so... Um, cartoonish. <laughs> cartoonish at times. Yeah, exactly. It almost seems to descend into outright parody. Like uh, um, American Psycho, then. It, absolutely. But maybe that's got more to do with sort of the, the position of Shades of Grey that we're looking back on it from. It does, you know, that, that's why it's so easy to uh, to send up the 80s. That, that, there's very little um, 90s... Uh, nostalgia movies because it was just such a, a, a sort of a, a wishy-washy time to be a part of. But everything was so sharp in the eighties. Everyone seemed to be taking everything so seriously that it makes it hilarious to look at now. I think it was Charlie Brooker who uh, uh, said that Wall Street uh, looks doesn't look like it was a movie made in, made in the late eighties. It looks like a movie made now, uh, which is a sharply observed satire of the eighties. The eighties actually feels like more like a very very long running drama series that ran from the seventies all the way through to the nineties, and uh, every bit of music from it was part of the soundtrack. There's a surreal quality to that decade. Mm. I mean, they they do reference um, the idea of things like hospitals and schools being run either by companies or very wealthy individuals. Mm. Um, and, and they refer to it as a, I mean, obviously, again, they're being set up to be sent up at this point. Mm. Um, but they're referring to this as a, a positive and, and saying about how this unchecked economic growth has created this environment. But it, it basically means that public services can only be run by these rich philanthropists and you can't rely on them because if they're incredibly well-meaning um, wealthy individuals then you can't guarantee that when they die what they've set up is going to continue to be run in that way and therefore nobody can depend on what they establish or if it's a corporation it's whatever they're running be it school, hospital, police or fire service is going to be undermined as soon as their profits start to sink they were very careful not to label it in a specific year. Did they? Did they give it like a far-off year of 1997 or something? No, <laughs> I don't, I don't think they ever mentioned the year. It's always a good idea not to do that. It's oh. it exists now in a parallel universe because if you look at the technology, it's like <laughs> look at those vid screens. Yeah, but you actually look at the city it takes place in. Mm. That's kind of creepy. Yeah, there's a lot of times when uh, the fact that it takes place in Detroit, where um, the uh, you know, this was the the place where American enterprise was supposed to boom, and it was just about the time when Detroit was really going down the crap hole. This is the place where it died. Yeah, and that the uh, the corporations went, uh, let's get the hell out of here on this one, and and they abandoned it. What year did Detroit become bankrupt? It was the early two thousands, of- wasn't it? If you want to name a beleaguered, unfortunate city that has been shat upon by all and sundry, Detroit, right there. Another question, did they have that Robocop statue erected? I know that they they paid for it. I, never, I, can never, I don't know if it um, never got 
I think there was like an internet um, uh, poll to get the, the, the money together for it, and, and then there was a, a lot of hoo-ha about, hang on, let me just... Uh, There's a Kickstarter and a half. We want a statue of Robocop. Please tell me they didn't stop them putting it up because it was copyright violation. No, I think it got built. I've seen images of it. I just don't know if it got actually erected. Robocop statue to guard Detroit after successful Kickstarter campaign. This is The Guardian. Crowdfunding site raises money in just six days to build a ten-foot bronze statue of Robocop ahead of the movie remake with Joel Kinnaman. Hmm. So they've built it, they've bought it, now they're waiting to see if the movie's shit before they decide whether to put it up or not. Citizens of Detroit, Peter Weller here. Back in 1987, I played Alex Murphy, better known to you as Robocop, a good policeman that some greedy punks turned into a heavily armed cyborg. Now you want to build a statue, a monument to Robocop and all he stands for. Regrettably, not all of you see the wisdom of this tribute to the spirit of your city, specifically your mayor, David Bing, who said the idea is silly. Well, Mayor Bing, if that in fact is your real name, was it silly when Murphy sacrificed his very identity to fight crime? Was it silly when Murphy cleaned up drugs in Detroit to save the city from being demolished? Was it silly when Murphy battled the super robot Kane, tore out his human brain with his bare hands, all you could see was his spinal cord all wriggling around and stuff, and Kane was screaming, ah, 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 all for you, citizens of Detroit? I don't find it silly at all. Well, the people of Detroit and RoboCop still have many challenges to face. Rampant unemployment, degradation of our nation's manufacturing base, and of course those corporate bastards at OCP led by their diabolical new CEO, Rick Snyder. But together, you, RoboCop, Eminem, Chrysler GM and Ford, Elmore Leonard, Michael Moore, Rita Franklin, Madonna, Tom Hulse, Tim Allen, Ted Nugent, Kirk Gibson, that dude who played Booger in Revenge of the Nerds. We will all work to rebuild our amazing city and erect a gigantic monument to Robocop. Dead or alive, you're coming with me. Okay, so my next question is, how does the soundscape accentuate the film? And you can't just say a lot. <laughs> well, they, they let the effects, uh, the sound effects, incorporate into so many scenes, uh, but in quite a subtle way. Mm -hmm. So although you do tend to get the overt sound effects, such as when Robocop's walking, you've got this wonderful vroom, vroom, vroom noise whenever he steps... Um, which I'm assuming is supposed to be all the pistons in his knees and, and things like that. But it, it really gets across this idea that he's not, um, he's not entirely organic anymore. There's this, uh, mechanical noise that goes along with him wherever he goes, regardless of what movements he's making. Um, but then you've got, um, it's sort of these little off screen things as well, like, um, when they're building him, the scene where they put his mask on um, and you see this drill come towards him and then it veers off off screen because, of course, he wouldn't be able to see it at that point. Yeah. But you've got the sound effect in the background making it very clear what's going on. Um, and there's quite a few occasions where that's used to sort of build um, build the setting um, in a way that, that communicates it more 
subtly than just having to say everything or show everything, which I think they kind of fall into the trap of in the um, the sequels. They give the um, machinery and, and everything to do with cybernetics uh, and the robotics in it a genuine sense of weight by... Uh, it, a lot of it may simply be in the hum. It's one thing to sort of go, foo-doo, 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 but that kind of... In the background gives you a, a sense of constant presence and energy, which sells the impact of several characters. None more so than Ed 209. Hey! <laughs> Everybody loves Ed 209, even though he's a complete and utter disastrous failure. He is. He's a, he's a, he's a insane, homicidal, enormous chicken. It's because he's a complete disastrous failure. It's sad to see him lying on his back, clawing vainly at the sky. He's like a Zoon. <laughs> <laughs> and deserves his ultimate fate. Zoons in. fall downstairs? So, yeah, my, uh, my, my next question uh, was going to be, why is Ed 209 such a memorable addition? Well, for a start, and this relates back to the soundscape thing, it's that hum. When he, yeah, the difference between him offline and then him suddenly in alert mode, that kind of really threatening. Mm. Mr. Kenny, use your gun in a threatening manner. Point it at Ed 209. Yes, sir. Please put down your weapon. You have 20 seconds to comply. It's a sense of immediate threat, which is then followed out in this horrific way. And he roars. It's been set up to be as aggressive and uh, animalistic as possible. It's a clumsy attempt to imitate biology. And it's way too ham-fisted, and they go far too far over the top with the the, the, the weight of it and the uh, how imposing it is, and don't pay real attention to the practicalities of it. It's never been taught how to handle stairs. When it is stymied by the stairs, it lies on its back, flapping its legs and squealing like a hog. Which is kind of hilarious. Yeah, it's it's absolutely hilarious, and it sucks all the sense of threat away from him. And you're like, oh, I was hoping for a big showdown between these guys, but they're not evenly matched. No, that's not going to happen. It, it does kind of. Um, I mean, it's basically Ed Two Hundred Nine is a tank on legs. Yeah. Um, and it, clearly it, made something of a, uh, an impact on a certain Mr. Kojima. Hmm. Well, it, it's. He's representative of this, um, again, this over-demonizing of the, the corporation's attitude. And it, it kind of underlines how anti-human they are, um, that they, they not only see urban civilization as something which needs to be pacified, um, and that absolutely fantastic line, urban pacification is only the beginning, uh, which I think was then referenced in Alien Resurrection. 
the potential for this species goes way beyond urban, urban pacification. Yeah, I think Dan Hedaya said that or something. Uh, yeah, that was during their stupid um, let's breed aliens and we'll use them for crowd control. Yeah, phase. indeed. Well, but but if they're you know if they're looking at uh, urban pacification as something that can be handled with tanks, mm. China tried that. It didn't go down well. Was this? Well, it, it was the plot line for Robocop Three. Yeah, I was going to say that they're in, in Robocop 3, they basically just hire mercenaries or street thugs and give them guns. I'm just going to look up Tiananmen Square and the incident. It was 1989. So it was two years later when they attempted crowd control with tanks. That didn't work. There is another reason why the Ed 209 demo is awesome. Mm-hmm. They kill Kenny. They do kill Kenny. And, well, the other thing is that the, uh, I'm assuming, Neil, you saw the full version of this, the, uh, the Criterion, like. I was watching the one on Netflix, so. That was the full version. So that, that had, uh, all of the, uh, the extra gore the, the blood. Yeah. The proper stuff. They, uh, they, they, they had to cut several frames, several seconds of it, uh, to achieve an R rating in the cinema. Uh, the interesting thing was, and Verhoeven mentions this in the, uh, commentary, the gore, and this is my next question, actually. What does the violence add to proceedings? The violence adds comedy. I know it sounds silly, but when Ed blows the shit out of that guy, on TV, it was just like, boo, 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 and then he's down, and everyone's screaming, and someone says, someone called a paramedic. On the uh, theatrical version, he shoots him for a lot longer, and that becomes, uh, you know, kind of funnier. But in the original cut, he shoots him for ages, He's just carving him up, turning him into hamburger meat. And it you go way beyond the fear that something terrible is going to happen into just sort of spluttering with laughter at what a, a, a ridiculously over-the-top scenario is going on. And it, it removes you from the, uh, the reality of it. And it allows you to relieve the tension with a laugh. Because when someone says, someone call a paramedic, you're like, dude, I'm calling this one. He's dead. He's a colander. He's just bits now. It's a fantastic scene of ultra-violence, mm. is what it is. And I don't mean that in the Kubrick sense. It's just this, this, this insane... You put it right. He's hamburger meat by the end of it. There's it, nothing yeah. left. But it's, it's almost like if you take that violence out, then the film's taking itself a wee bit too seriously. Yeah, it is one of those scenes where it, the, the film's sort of going to you, no, 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 it's okay. Mm. See, with the violence, it's all a parable. It's all a saga. It's all uh, something being retold to you with with exaggeration. Yeah, yeah, it just yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And this is the story of poor Alex Murphy. And let's cut away while he is horribly killed and give him his dignity. Dear uh, God, no! That that's uh, yeah. No, that's, that scene. Imagine that scene is actually key. Yeah, it, it, it's and it is it is incredibly violent, although still slightly fanciful it's almost like this film itself is an un, uh, I can't remember the proper term now um, but it's an untrustworthy narrator of itself yeah because he's shot multiple times at close range with shotguns mm. uh. and he's still alive somehow yeah they'd be taking him to um, refit in a dustpan I think their yeah. glee during that moment is a, it's a 
that you're being delivered horror at this stage. Uh, there's nothing actually funny about that scene. There's something uh, awe-inspiring about it and, and fascinating, and horror can't, can't tear your eyes away about, out of it. But you're supposed to feel trapped like Murphy. You're supposed to be in his head, and especially that then leads into his transformation into Robocop. You're, you're stuck as him, and it's an uncomfortable, unpleasant feeling. You kind of have to feel that torment. If they cut away, it's almost like, no, 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 it's okay, and soothing you. That needs to be shoving you in there. Ridiculous levels of gore at, at that point uh, serve to elucidate the pain that he goes through. However, I have a question on this count, given that we were talking about Planet Terror and Death Proof and, mm. and sort of the various uh, rigged uh, fake trailers that led into the grindhouse double bill yeah why is it that when watching those in the moments of extreme gore and violence which clearly by the makers of the film are intended to have the same effect they're supposed to be comedic they're supposed to be so over the top that you couldn't possibly be emotionally um uh, harmed by them mm-hmm. I can't bear them. I, I actually had to close my eyes, turn away, cover my ears. I, I couldn't absorb them on any level. They were too real. Why does this not have the same effect? Mainly because they're out of context. Like I said, this whole thing has been a parable, and it uh, it makes the whole thing ever so slightly unreal. You're watching a story unfold. If you're just seeing, j- j- basically just watch out of context, horrible, gory moments, one after the other, and you're going to feel first appalled and then desensitized. So hostile, then. Yeah. Anything <laughs> attached to Eli Roth. That, that's a good point, Shane. <laughs> That is a very good point. Uh, it's, it's almost like the fact that you're engaged with uh, Murphy at that point makes you um, makes the violence to him. You're slightly detached from what's going on because if you were fully absorbed in it, you wouldn't really be able to focus on the film itself. Yeah. Yeah. Alert. Red alert. Red alert. You crossed my line of death. You haven't dismantled your MX stockpile. Pakistan is threatening my border. That's it, Buster. No more military aid. Nuke them. Get them before they get you. Another quality home game from Butler Brothers. Going back to one of your earlier questions, does it ever go too far in terms of the, the satire? You mentioned that, that, it, that it does, otherwise you wouldn't have asked that. For me, I think it, it... See, I think too far may not be the right phrasing on it. It does, but for all of the reasons that we've already discussed, I think, because it's trying to um, over-egg the pudding in a way that then gets you to absorb the message that little bit more easily and get it to a wider audience. Um, and you actually you see this in Verhoeven's um, other films that we were discussing earlier today, Total Recall, um, Starship Troopers. We're watching Total Recall after this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> he, he uses the extreme and the almost ridiculous to sneak the ideas under the wire, I think. Mm. Mm. Which, interestingly enough, is also a South Park trick. Yeah, uh, but there's actually there is a, a, a connection. I said this uh, earlier today. Uh, there is a, conne- a thematic connection running through Verhoeven's sci-fi trilogy, which is Robocop, Total Recall, Starship Troopers. All of them are his take on the future and America. Mm. Even if it's set on Mars, Total Recall is totally about America. And uh, Starship Troopers is condemning America as a fascist state. So it, it turns them into Roman stroke Nazis. Yeah. 
and the whole thing is, is pitched as propaganda, not dissimilarly to the cartographer's handbook. Um, so, but those three have more in common than Robocop 1, 2, and 3. Am I the only one then? It's another Schwarzenegger film I'm thinking of. Can't you not see the running man being the future of this world as well? I could. Yeah, in terms of the media and the Bob Barker yeah. being and the, the salacious glee at people being horribly, I could see a, a commercial for the Running Man taking place during RoboCop. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that would fit. Because this is this is my one of my favourite genres. This sort of dystopian future yeah. darkness. I love this genre so much. If you imagine that some states in America, it's gone far more to hell than it has in Detroit, and Texas. Uh, yeah, um, well, where's the Running Man set? I can't remember. Let's say Texas, shall we? Uh, and they, they're basically they broadcast this from Texas to uh, to keep people um, satiated. Oh, wasn't um, the uh, female lead in The Running Man the woman who played Melina or Melinda? in Total Recall? In Total Recall. Rem- well remembered. Also starring Old Schwarzenegger, who, by the way, was originally going to be cast as Robocop, but they needed someone uh, thinner. thinner. Thin and lithe, muscular, but thin enough to be able to uh, to balance the frame of the Robocop suit around him uh, without basically just looking like a lumbering turret. That's well, if they what put Arnie in this, would he would have looked as. like Ed 209. Uh, he'd have looked like Mr. Freeze. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it takes place in California, by the way, I think. Uh, in '87, would Schwarzenegger have said, "I'm not doing this"? Like you know, because it was a, it was, it was hell on earth for Paul Peter Weller, who gave, he gave it his all. He really had a horrible time playing Robocop. He, he recalls it as being one of the worst experiences of his life. And kind of like a Ridley Scott film, his good ones at least. Uh, it was a miserable time. But, um, but yeah, apparently Robocop 2 was a lot more miserable. So, uh, yeah, they were at least that getting stuff done. didn't even have anything particularly good coming out yeah. at the end of it. Lewis, it's not till you've seen Robocop 3 that you realise what a fantastic job Nancy Allen did in this first Robocop Talk about Lewis. What do you think? I've just realised she was in Carrie, wasn't she? she was she the nice friend? No. She that was a bad was, friend. Um, yeah. Um, I can't remember the name of the character. Basically, she's the mean ringleader of the um, the girls who start it all off. Shit, I had completely forgotten about that. So on to Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. On to and Lewis. not stereotypical female for a start? Hell no. Which is kind of nice. She's also pretty much a competent cop mm-hmm. for the most part. Except for that bit in Robocop 3, so he's like, I won't need a flak jacket, I'm off duty. No, I think that's because she wanted out of this series more than Peter Weller. <laughs> <laughs> she was making sure she was out. Like, yeah, just make sure, just aim for the heart. So I'm definitely going to be dead at the end of this, right? <laughs> right? I think this, this kind of ties in with um, what I wanted to talk about, the, the buddy movie elements mm. of, um, of Robocop. Um, and how Lewis's role plays into that. The fact that, uh, like you say, Neil, she's not the stereotypical female character. In fact, there is zero hint of any romance or anything between her and Murphy. Now that I think about it, she could feasibly have been a chap. Yeah. The whole way through. Her name could Absolutely. have been Lewis, like like a man's name. Exactly. Hence why is this a buddy movie? It, it's it's about, um, in on some level, it's about the partnership between them. And... 
her faith in him, even though he's only been her partner for a short period, her faith in him and in who he is. I mean, one of the things that struck me was um, how certain she is in her belief that he is still Murphy. When she meets him in the corridor, Mm. although she initiates the conversation by asking him what his name is and, and sort of trying to check out how he's thinking and how he's feeling. He does not respond positively to those questions. And yet she comes back with Murphy, it's you, not Murphy, is it you? Murphy, it's you. She is very certain that it's still him. And this is even before she's seen his face. Yeah. Um, But she, there's sort of the little nods to it still could be Murphy, uh, thinking like the gun rage scene where he does, the only way I can describe it is he spins the gun. Yeah. Like TJ laser. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which looks like a shit TV show, am I? <laughs> yeah, but that 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 part that she has in being almost antagonistic in triggering his thinking about who he is and and mm. why he's become this uh, combination of of human and machine. It's almost like she's part of him. Like maybe Lewis stepped out after that, and the rest of it is in Robocop's head. Maybe she's the she's the one saying you're real. You're still a human. Yeah, certainly reflecting that back to him. Yeah. Nothing else. Uh, there's a there's a nurturing element uh, to her, but uh, you were very quick to point out that it's not maternal in nature, and neither is it romantic. Well, I think the distinction is that she's not particularly protective of him. Um, she kind of. It's almost as if she's nurturing in the sense that she wants to bring his potential out. Yeah. And that's more... There, there are... I suppose you could argue that there are motherly elements to that, but that's more mother of a teenager trying to encourage potential rather than mother of a child being particularly protective. Um, I mean, I, I when they have um, the, the scene in the warehouse where he takes his helmet off and she sees his face for the first time... I think a lot of the time in sci-fis, you tend to get this this moment where where somebody sees something that makes it evident that this person is a, a cyborg, or you know, there's there's some kind of machine element involved in this, some non-biological agent that has come into this person. There's a moment of almost revulsion or a disconnect, a, something that they have to overcome in order to accept that this is hu- this person is still human there is none of that with her she, he takes his helmet off she sees him and she just says it's really good to see you she actually accepts that totally as yeah. him whatever is left that's him and she's happy with that yeah also that special effect is probably one of my favorites ever yeah it's, it's fantastic so even good, today yeah in fact while we were watching i was watching for bits of effects which made me go "Ooh, none in robocop I mean, there's a few like... nine looks... Yeah. Considering he's stop motion, it still works really well because you get the sense of size and power and weight from it. And threat. Part of it is an acknowledgement of what the limitations of the technology you have available to you are. One of the things about Jurassic Park is that a lot of the CG stuff is done from a distance because they know it's not going to hold up brilliantly well when you get close up. Yeah. 
that's when you have your, the animatronic stuff. But the combination of those two, your brain is basically telling you, okay, from a distance that might look a little bit fuzzy, but it's at a distance. That makes sense. When we get up close, we can see the texture of the skin. We can see how the, the spit on the teeth. Mm. So you build it into a, a full piece. Ed 209, it walks like that and it moves like that because it's a machine. It makes perfect sense. And I was really impressed, actually, by the way that they've blended that animatronic. Mm. Uh, sorry, the um, the stop mo into the film as a whole because you've got it there right in between two human actors, so it it just seems almost seamless, even though it is so jerky. And if you hold it in comparison to the far more expensively filmed Robocop Two, there is a literal analog moments with Kane when he's sort of knocking about the place with a sort of what looks like a a rubber CG uh, Robocop doll. And it had to just have been like a Marquette, which he was just knocking about the place. It looks terrible at mm. times. Also, uh, his the the face animation is so early CGI. The lawnmower man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and none of the good stuff. Were those the worst bits of Robocop Two? Those were the, were the best, best bits, bits of Robocop Two. <laughs> Uh, anything with Tom Noonan in, but that's because I freaking love Tom Noonan. Yeah, he was really intense. He's good, yeah. Back to uh, the uh, the effects. That, like, yeah, like I say, uh, Robocop 2, full of bits where you're like, ooh, Robocop 3. String. Me. There, there was almost no effects in it at all, but the ones that were there were terrible. I actually think the TV series had a bigger budget. I wasn't going to There is reason. There is a reason for that. That's you. I've never <laughs> no, I was just going to say there's a reason for that because I don't know if you know this, but Canon were pretty much going down the crapper by that point. Oh God, they actually they had no money to spend. Speaking of money, Total Recall came out the same year as RoboCop Two, cost sixty five million. So uh, uh, consider, yeah, it cost more, considerably more, um, but it made two hundred and sixty one million versus RoboCop Two's. 45 million. But now, Total Recall is a better film. It's a way better film. That's and the, I want to point out that's the 1990 ver- version. Yes. that's the, We're never going to talk about the remake. That's the one that Verhoeven went to instead of doing Robocop 2. Now, there were various reasons for that. Um, Schwarzenegger, obviously, in that. The fact that it had an intricate and interesting plot uh, as the director of Robocop. But I, it can't just be the fact that it was incredibly violent, but that probably helped. So... I'm interested to know what the hell happened between 1990 and 1993 to turn Robo- the Robocop series and, in fact, movies in general into wussland. Was it just the Gulf War? What? Terminator 2. Judgment Day was significantly um, uh, minimized in terms of violence, and a lot of the violence, um, violent moments were made comedic in order to give that appeal for younger audiences also but uh, the, the turn down violence in certain sections of that film is for actually a plot point well not a plot point but part of the character growth mm. of the Terminator so yeah. it, it actually played into the story as well which is a, a very clever way of hiding it because it didn't actually affect the overall film because you still have the violence from the T-1000 but the T-800 is learning and is actually being less violent. So it's, it's kind of a strange way how it plays Absolutely. into the story. And it also demonstrates um, how John is um, very strongly on the, you know, we, we don't hurt people if we don't have to. Um, and we certainly don't kill people. You just can't. Um, just checking my notes to see whether it was Terminator. It was, rated, uh, it was, it was rated R. 
before you carry on. Terminator 2 was an R. Even though it had less of an adherence to violence, it was the same rating as Total Recall, where Schwarzenegger puts a pipe through a dude's eye. But it was sculpted in such a way as to appeal to a younger overall audience than the original Terminator film. I still don't see how you could feed that into a machine and then outplot Robocop 3. Well, there's, there's, we even mentioned it. There was a, there's a point where loads of bullets are spraying everywhere. Mm. Nobody gets hit. Ed 209 all, all shoots the, at the, the cops. Cars. Yeah. That's almost directly referencing, yeah. uh, Oh, by the way, that was one of the only two moments. Uh, we were we were doing a drinking game during Robocop 3. Every time something truly cretinous happens, that like plot-breakingly cretinous, that, no, 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 you can't sneak that by us. You can't continue with the film and say that was the reason that we'd take a shot. We only did it twice. Once was when the little girl typed into a little mini-computer that was hooked up to Ed 209, loyal as a puppy, and it became loyal as a puppy. Sorry, that's not how computers work. And uh, the the other one was that cy- uh, Cyberdyne building, <laughs> it may as well have been OCP's building had a self destruct. What what building has a self destruct? OCP apparently. Yeah, you're thinking <laughs> of spaceships. Mm-hmm. But no, that was that. It was three that I was thinking of because that's one of the notes I put. Apparently, loyal as a puppy means no casualties. There's also. Like as I'm talking about three, with Canon going pretty much bankrupt at that point, there was another thing that they were banking on, which was the merchandise. Merchandising. Which was the toys. Yeah. So and that means it's got to appeal to kids. Yeah. Robocop. Part man, part robot. All cop. The ultimate in law enforcement. Robocop and the Ultra Police. The only cops with rapid repeat cap firing. He's unstoppable. Battling the worst criminals. Headhunter. And Nitro. <laughs> the Ultra Police, protected by Robo Armor, bring Robocop even more firepower. In the fight for justice, nothing can stop. Robocop. Robocop and the Ultra Police, each sold separately with Robocaps. So, I mean, the other thing is, of course, uh, they filmed a lot on location. You really get that when you um, see uh, Robocop 2. So many when places there. So, like, sets. Uh, they filmed a lot of it in Houston because it was very clean and very quiet. And uh, they could film at night without much uh, problem. And everyone is so clean cut in that. You know, they, you know they, like, they're showing all the kids and the kids are all rowdy. And they've just like pulled these kids out of high school and given them brand new costumes to put on. There's not a speck of dirt on these street thugs. And The guy got, like, with the temporary transfer tattoos. Yeah. At least one Brilliant. of them's got braces in it. She's like, get out of here. We don't want you coming around here with our arcade games. Your hair is fluffy. You yeah. must understand how that doesn't work. It, ju- it just seems like like community theatre, and they've got all the kids dressed up, and they're like, "Yeah, you really ought to be in part of RoboCop." And then suddenly, like these Boy Scouts robbing a store, start saying, "He's fucked up," and it's like, "This feels wrong." It is a very weird juxtaposition. About a year ago, we gave this city RoboCop. Ready for duty, partner? Nothing I'd rather do. I think he's worked out pretty well. Have a seat. This is a bust. But things have become a little rougher out there. This unit needs millions of dollars in parts. You see, Robocop's off warranty. He's one of mine. 
And I want him back on his feet. I believe that Murphy's case was unusual, but not unique. We can find someone else. Someone to whom the prospect might even be desirable. And now, we need a law enforcement unit capable of meeting the enemy on his own ground. She's screaming psychotic, sir. Well, we aren't planning to build a toy. I'm carrying in a firepower to get the job done. I got good news for you. You're going to have a chance for immortality. With great pleasure, I give you RoboCop 2. Ah, uh, yes. Things will be a lot quieter with this boy around. That thing is a Yeah. Also, the lighting. Uh, not something we often talk about in films, but hmm. there's such a... Because I went from one to two in the same... Literally in the click of a picture. Yeah. Um, you can see a difference in the cinematography, yeah. and that makes a massive difference. Robocop 2, in its lighting design, is light. It's quite well lit and quite bright, whereas Robocop isn't. Yeah, well, one's grimy and almost documentary in, at, at times. Yeah. Which we, we really can't works. see the armor properly. Yes, that's why it works. It doesn't look plastic. Mm. Does, does anyone notice that he got he went really blue in Robocop Two? Like I just, the first yeah, one is very silver. Got, the third one is kind of silver again. Two really blue. He's very blue and plasticky looking as well. Mm. Yeah. Throw a little hot rod red in there. <laughs> <laughs> there were many times when I thought um, that, that this is like a, a really basic Iron Man story coming on going on there which is another reason why I was like what's the point of remaking it we have Iron Man now also blowing him up as well let's not talk about it we haven't seen it yet it could be brilliant that's gonna date <laughs> well I'm just thinking the guy that's directing came out and said if this version of Robocop was made today it would be a PG-13 and I went on what fucking world is that the TV edit would you are going to be a bad mother crusher. I'm executive for this company. I used to call the old man funny names. Iron Butt. Boner. Once I even called him... Airhead. Why me? I got the muscle to shove enough of this factory so far up your stupid fat nose that you'll blow snow for a year. Frankie blow this bloodsucker's head off. Ooh, can't, can't. Or there will be trouble. Yeah. But you come quietly or there will be trouble. Oh, damn you. You bloodsucker. Well, listen, Chief. Your company built the freaky thing. Now I gotta deal with it? I don't have time for this baloney. The finale being in an old disused mill and a yard, that, that really sold a sense of uh, tangibility about the place. Although it seemed grotty. Uh, anyone who works perhaps in a mill or some sort of industry like that, mm. do, is there a fact that it's just randomly labelled toxic waste? Yeah. Mm. We just put all our toxic waste in here and hope nothing's going to happen. What? 
<laughs> Speaking of which, best moment in the film. Second best, third best moment. No, second best in the film. <laughs> Uh, when uh, that that chappy goes barreling into the toxic waste and comes out going all melty, and then um, everyone reels away from him, and then as the cars bear down, it's like, please get hit by that car, and then when he does and explodes, his head bounces across the screen in half a frame. Uh, it kind of justifies the terrible violence done to Murphy. Not that you want to see that happen, but because that then happens. It becomes almost like, uh, even though it's procedural, a revenge film where he gets to commit bloody acts upon the people who uh, who did that to him. Yeah, but in fairness, they are trying to kill him. Yeah, again. again. It's yeah, once is bad enough, but twice is just really bad manners. Um, actually, uh, uh, relating to that scene, uh, how has Verhoeven intentionally made this a Jesus parable? Yeah, this is, this is about Robocop coming back from the dead and the scene where he walks on water. Yeah, there's uh, there's several moments in there that uh, one is uh, when they're laughing at him uh, when they're they're killing Murphy. That uh, was uh, done deliberately to evoke uh, the uh, the taunting and tormenting of Jesus on the cross. Uh, and then when he comes back to life, obviously there's that. Verhoeven even gleefully talks about this during the um, uh, the commentary. He walks on water, and that although Verhoeven didn't mention it, Clarence stabs him in the side with a spear. And also, when he sh- when he's killed the first time, yeah. um, they have him down on the floor in a crucifix position, and they shoot one hand, and then they go as if they're going to shoot the other. Yes, that's the first nail. Oh Jesus, you're right. Sorry. Oh, the- <laughs> <laughs> oh Murphy, you're right. Oh Murphy, you're right. Um, that's got to be sacrilegious. There's many, many things in this movie that, uh, like I say, he's he's got a childlike element to him, but he is so much smarter than most of the other uh, directors putting out your average schlocky horror films uh, in, in those days and your average uh, sci-fi. Uh, anything with Van Damme in it, basically. <laughs> uh, the the modern-day director I actually most equate him to is actually Neil Blomkamp. And I kind of wish Blomkamp had done the Robocop remake. If they were going to remake it at all, Blomkamp would have made it really socially aware. He would have brought a lot more subtlety to it yeah. than the original. Which I mean, we is... don't know. Again, we haven't seen it. It could be brilliant. I'm going to go ahead and guess it's not subtle. No. I'm going to depend it a little bit and just say that it's. I think it's trying to do something different, go on different themes than perhaps the, the Verhoeven's Robocop. Okay. I think it, by the, what I'm getting from it, it looks like it's more about Murphy coming to terms with what he is. Right. But I could be completely and utterly and terribly wrong. <laughs> I have to date. But um, that does lead us quite neatly onto the next point. Yeah. Um, which is what's the purpose of having Murphy become the machine, and is that a positive thing? Now, what uh, one of the things that made me want to talk about this side of things um, was the whole setup of this overly capitalized um, world in which the people with the money make all the decisions and, and they are becoming increasingly detached from their own emotions so that they can stomp on real human beings as much as they need to in order to bring in their profits. Is becoming part machine yourself actually quite a viable response to that? Is that possibly, in fact, the only way that you can survive in that kind of environment? Is what you're saying, when all humanity has drained out of the world, 
you need to become something more and something less than human. Yeah, to survive that and and to to be to continue to be functional and useful in that world. I mean, if you look at how um, Murphy's story begins. This is something that um, there's there's like one or two lines that allude to this, and I don't know how overt it was intended to be, but he, he was transferred to that division so that he would get killed because they want he was one of the candidates for the Robocop project. They put him in a deliberately um, uh, extremely violent area from his, you know, well-run, well-organized division that he was in before to put him in harm's way. So from the very word go, they are treating him like property, um, like something where his humanity is disregarded so that they can use him. One of the points you uh, um, make, like, can I go on to the question 12 to as uh, is a way of answering this one? Yeah, of course. One of the other questions you've got uh, is uh, how does the emotional machine idea continue into RoboCop 2? There is a point at the beginning when they're talking to Murphy, sorry, RoboCop, they're saying, you're a machine, would you stop hounding your former family? You're upsetting them. Do you, do you not see this? And you were the one, Sean, who I think pointed out that they stopped trying to talk to him like he's a machine and an appliance and tried to convince him that he's a machine by appealing to his emotions. Absolutely. The, the, it could they, just be really terrible writing or really clever writing. Well, the, 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 there is a massive it's Frank inconsistency. Miller, so it's yeah. There's <laughs> a massive you. inconsistency about their approach there because what they're trying to achieve at that point, and I think this, this was something you said, Alex, a better way of doing it would be to ask him the question, do you still think this is your family? When he says yes, yes. keyboard, reprogram, right, now. Do you still think that this is your family? That's how you reprogram a robot, not by trying to convince them that they're harming. You know, you don't you don't say to your iPod, you are causing me immense stress at this point, <laughs> and I really wish you'd just do what I want you to do. Or I've I'm had shouting to matches. You at a wall. I've had shouting matches with my toaster. And what have do you the- want? I put it on three, it doesn't cook at all. I put it on four, it comes up burnt. This is, four toast. Ever, this is four toast. <laughs> have they ever worked? No. Exactly. Well, I mean, one the way they could have done it would uh, have been to have him say, you're upsetting this woman. It's inefficient. Yeah. Because that's the way you appeal to a machine. You tell them that their, that their subroutine is ineffectual. But Robocop isn't a machine. Exactly. Exactly. But that's that's where this whole um this whole merging idea I think is is communicated in an extremely visual way. You've got um the whole transformation scene where he becomes it's entirely shown from his point of view. Um, apart from sort of the, a few over the shoulder shots when he's actually coming into the hospital so that you can see the um uh, the crash team working on him, um, which I think didn't it say in the commentary that was an actual hospital crash team? Yes, I did not hear that. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> sure. I'm sure I could be completely wrong on that, but I'm sure they said that it was that they got real doctors and nurses to try and give as authentic a feel to that scene as they possibly could um, and I actually think that whole section is put together brilliantly because you've got this this sense of urgency this real feeling that here is a human being who's dying and when they 
call it and they say that's it he's gone and then it's and it's his angle you're you know over the shoulder you're you're in his position you have been brought along with him on this incredibly traumatic experience and then the next shot you are seeing through his eyes and and what he sees you see and all of the building him up into robocop and into what he becomes is all in this very video gamey framed um you know eyes through heads up display um, setting and they stick with that they are really really loyal to that format for a very long period of time it does make that it's probably what five minutes about five minute ten minute stretch that film mm. very interesting yeah, very yeah, close yeah. personal that is a long time to be in a fixed position in a film especially one that is ostensibly an action film mm. But that's the thing, it's ostensibly an action film, but while it delivers blistering, splattering action uh, at uh, carefully given points, it's not dissimilar, in fact, to The Matrix in the fact that it's, it's, more, it's about something more than just the splatter. And it's, a, it's about more than just the Robocop. Now, the, one of the issues with um, 2 and 3 is they didn't know what to do with Robocop. Uh, ultimately, I think um, uh, Roger Ebert said this one. There's really only so much you can do with a, um, a, a robot policeman who be- who goes against his instructions. Mm. Once they he's already do, done that, what then do you do? They do try, but it is very front loaded. And and like we said, this idea of the um, the man in machine or the machine in man carrying through into Robocop. It does, but it's all at the beginning. Um, the, the reprogramming scene, the, the fact that they go on about this idea that pain response is just electrical. Well, it's just electrical in humans. It's not the pain that's the point, or it's not the pain responses that's the point. It's how we feel them and how we respond to them that's the issue. Um, and then you've got the, the scenes where he he goes walking around the police station very specifically with his helmet off. Now, that suggests that he is presenting himself as Alex Murphy. He wants people to see his face. He wants them to respond to him as if he's Murphy, or at least that's the way it seems to me. It's subtly done. He doesn't really interact with anybody in a way that makes that, you know, you don't get to see anybody else's discomfort over that. Um, but, you know, that that is then kind of reversed when they do the reprogramming they put the helmet back on you can't see his facial reactions you can't see what he's thinking when they reprogram him and and, um, and take his emotions away and once all those emotions have been cut off he basically ends up being as crap as all the attempts at making a cyborg that they've done in the meantime where they've been pulling off their own heads and things because they just don't work yeah there is a clear delineation between the uh, corporation represented entirely by people making themselves like automatons and cutting off their emotions to deal with a machine that has a soul that is fighting to get out. And frankly, is better at handling emotions than they are. Yeah. There's a lot about control in this as well. It's almost like the crime becomes incidental. I mean, the, the criminals are seen as just such cackling, um, like ridiculous characters that especially in Robocop 2 that they just don't care about anyone everyone's equally psychotic everyone will kill their own grandmother for a hit of nuke but so it it almost becomes more just about control and chaos the overexertion of control being just as bad as the overexertion of chaos I'm trying not to say Frank Miller indeed (laughs) 
Frank Miller, just to explain this one, Frank Miller wrote the first draft of Robocop 2 and then they changed it exponentially and he got really pissed off. Then they invited him back to write the first draft for Robocop 3. Then they changed it even more and he left Hollywood until 2005 when Sin City came out. And uh, his point of view was that all of the uh, uh, power lay with the director and that the uh, script was a fire hydrant and every dog around the block is waiting <laughs> Uh, to line up around to take a piss on it. He's not and wrong. He's not wrong. But Welcome uh, to Hollywood, Frank. No one gives a fuck about you. That's what they do to the writer. And then he directed The Spirit. Uh. Another really good thing about Robocop 1, which the second and third don't really have in quite the same way, they have a great supporting cast, and the supporting cast are given stuff to do. Giving that cast stuff to do. Ronnie Cox, Kurtwood Smith, Miguel Ferreira. They've all got their own part to play in this unfolding drama thriller revolving around OCP. It's almost like Robocop is a bit player in this, but that's fine because he is kind of what the whole plot revolves around. In the second and third ones, it's it's almost like, well, what do we do with this Robocop guy? Ronnie Cox as Dick Jones specifically is absolutely like scenery-chewing evil, especially uh, in, uh, since he was he he'd grown up being the nice guy. This was out of turn for him to play somebody horrible as Dick. He was very nice in the Beverly Hills Cop series. Yeah, well, it's so nice that I was thinking, he's going to be the one who's treacherous. And oh, actually, no, he was a good guy. As Bogomil. And uh, apparently, yeah, Kurtwood Smith, again, as uh, Clarence, is apparently really lovely and affable in real life, but he just happened to be play someone who was believably sociopathic. He actually reminded me of um, uh, Jack Nicholson in uh, Batman before he becomes the Joker. Mm. Just this guy who just doesn't give a fuck about anybody and would just stub his cigarette out in your eye if you pissed him off. Gentlemen, our esteemed former chairman had a dream. He called it Delta City. There's only one small problem. It's turning into a war zone! Between chaos... And corruption. We made a deal, didn't we, Chuck? Between the unthinkable. This is your home. You're safe here. And the unbelievable. Stay here! Fight for your home! Between a cop. You called for backup? Police officer, no loitering. And his partner. Is it going? I'm still scanning three. Make that two. It's not bleach. It was done down by a red <laughs> I promise. Robocop has joined the terrorist rebel forces. Disobeyed a direct order. I hope you are sure. I thought your damn ninja was supposed to take care of Robocop. We have a warrant out. You may want to call the fire department. New dangers. Nice try, freak. New rules. You are in violation of curfew. New heights of excitement. Robocop 3. It's time to lay down the law. Better alive. You're coming with me.
I actually saw Robocop 2 first, but uh, at the same time, I think I, I was kind of on board with it, but I wasn't really, it was kind of empty and hollow and it was missing something. So when I saw Robocop 1, I was like, ah, this this feels like more of a film. Even at what, I'd have been 11, 12 tops. Oh yeah, you can tell that the, the Robocop 1 is, yeah. is much better. But I then actually when thought I, 2 when, was going to be better than it was. I, I, obviously, I misremembered that. Mind you, I hadn't seen it in a while. So did I, and I was the one saying, oh, I, I have a soft spot for 2. That soft spot for 2 is, has grown harder. Which is really <laughs> annoying when you re- look who directed it. Yeah, it's Irvin Kirshner, director of The Empire Strikes Back. Mm. Yeah. And it was his last film, although he did get 20 years in between time to uh, ruminate and go, I probably shouldn't have done that one. Um, I would say he did try. There are moments in Robocop 2. There, there are bits. It's just There's a lot of good ideas in there. Just yeah. They were held back, I think. It was just... I think it was boring in the end. It but, was. It's, it's, we've, we've, once you've seen Robocop and all of that stuff that, that goes on, you really don't need to see Robocop 2. The, the, the best bits of it are the, uh, the botched Robocop 2s where they're all killing themselves yeah. because it's, it, it, again, it reminds me of that, uh, Justin Hammer scene in, uh, Iron Man where, uh, oh, yeah. he's pointing out that the, the other people trying to do Iron Man themselves, um, are, are just messing up and creating catastrophes. Uh, what's the other really good bit? Was there another good bit? Oh, the, the robot fight at the end isn't too bad. It's, 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 Will you two behave yourself? <laughs> it, was, it was nice to see that uh, that guy. What's that guy's name again? The the one who sounds very much like Christopher Lee. Dan O'Hearley? He's yeah. literally just called the old man. Yeah, I don't think he ever gets a name because even in the third film he's just referenced as the old man uh, yeah he's got this incredible what sort of uh, deep uh, commanding voice and uh, oh he died in uh, 2005 age 85 but uh, yeah he's, he's he's definitely notable by his absence in the third one mm. he was commanding in the second and, oh. uh, and then they when you re- Riptorn <laughs> I was about to say when you replace him with Riptorn oh dear you sorry little ingrates Riptorn uh, only works in bloody men in black that's only in the first one. Ebert said he was basically just rehashing his role in, as the producer in the Larry Sanders show. Uh, whatever the fuck that means. It's back. Big is back. Because bigger is better. 6,000 SUX. An American tradition. Thunder. The pride is back. It's the power of a compact. It looks small, but it's so big. Fuel injected. Inject me. My Batsu Thunder. What is the meaning behind Murphy slash Robocop shooting the baby food? Because I thought, I'm reading too much into this. And I thought, no, Verhoeven knows stuff. He knows that this is going to be interpreted in one way or another. What's the meaning behind that? There's a couple of things at play here, I think, personally. You've got... The element of, um, again, this idea of, of Murphy integrating the cybernetic parts of him with his human parts. Um, <laughs> uh, and the idea that he's basically accepting that his I was going to say his child, but no, the child is not gone. He knows that the child goes on without him, but his role as a father is over now. He no longer has that part to play in that family. 
So by sort of destroying these uh, images of, of children, which, is, let's face it, most people, if they were using baby food for target practice, they would turn the face away because um, the child in a shooting range is the one that you're not supposed to kill. Or you'd get the one with just carrots on the front. Well, indeed, yeah. Um, but he, it's set up very deliberately for him to take those out. So I think that, yeah, I think you're right. I think there is more to it than just, hey, we want to see something go splat. Um, he's just come up off the back of this long night of soul searching. He's been sat there, you know, with his helmet off, thinking all night. And this is his first action in the morning to, to sort of do this, this target realignment, which Lewis has to come and help him with. But I think as well as the, uh, the sort of the elimination of the, the father within him, um, there's also the fact that he is quite literally reacquiring his goal, his targeting skills. He's setting his sights on Bodica. The, the fact that, um, you know, he wants to take out this, gang that killed him he's been having flashbacks to this um you know there is this element of of wanting if not revenge then at least to balance the scales and ultimately the robot part of him is going to help him do this as murphy holy murphy he wouldn't be able to do that but as robocop he can so it's it's kind of the final step i think in embracing that side of himself so that he can achieve what he wants to achieve Brilliant. Who needs essay material? Thank you so much. That was exactly what I was going to say. But oh. so much better. Okay. <laughs> Finally, I think, uh, is, is there anything else we can talk about before I talk about the last bit? Oh, actually, one thing I did want to say. Um, yes. In the, the bit that kind of precedes the targeting scene, where you've got the night before, where the, he has the, the gun battle, mm. um, the fact that Lewis manages to rescue him from that gun battle is, I think, more significant for her than it is for him. Because mm-hmm. the first time this happened, she couldn't save him. She was stuck behind a fence. True. There was nothing she could do. She had to watch him die. And a lot of her behaviour after that was motivated um, in part, at least by guilt. I think so, yeah. But in this instance, she gets to replay it, but she gets to save him. She gets yeah. to pull him away from it. And I think that um, possibly... You don't really see anything overt suggesting that, but I think that heals part of her relationship with him. Robocop. Journey to a futuristic Detroit that's become a bankrupt, crime-ridden hellhole. Basically present-day Detroit. It's a city crying out for a savior, and they'll get one in Robocop. A blatant Jesus metaphor who's killed, gets resurrected, and walks on water. But instead of dying for our sins, this Jesus shoots rapists in the dick. There's another through line going through the whole thing of not just distaste for big business, but just look, this is what happens, folks. Do not trust these guys. They will use you as long as they feel like uh, using you. And then when you become a burden, they will shoot you. And even the things that they do that seem positive, and and like I said, the these robotic elements to himself will enable Murphy to achieve his goals. But the point at which, you know, where uh, Lewis is face down in the mud and she says she's all messed up and he says they'll fix you, they fix everything. Mm. It's His tone is so ambiguous at that point and the way he just, he turns away, he sounds almost regretful as though, yes, they fix everything, but on some level he still wishes they hadn't. 
There is actually an element of transhumanism running throughout this. It relates back to uh, what you were saying earlier about being able to survive in a world this cold. Because our brains are not designed to cope in a world so absolutely fraught with stress, the idea of galvanizing our bodies and indeed our minds with machinery and and actually evolving into a uh, techno-organic organism uh, is if not a retreat, a defense mechanism for the human race. And Robocop is one of the pioneers of that. The first of many. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And what is the significance of the last line? As in, what's your name, son? Murphy. Murphy. It's something that actually kind of, it almost negates two and three. Because two and three should be Murphy dealing with who he is now. But it's almost like that last scene didn't happen. And he's like, right, go outside, put the helmet back on. I'm back on duty. I'm Robocop going out and solving the problems. You kind of have to ignore what happened in two and three and look at just what happens at the end of Robocop to really see the way that the story went, which is that after going through all of this, he gets back ownership of his soul. And in killing Dick, he becomes a man again. Armoured, yes, but a man nonetheless. An Iron Man. An Iron Man, indeed. Sorry. No, no, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. It's the, the, the two films are absolutely related. Yeah, except I would say with at least Iron Man, there's almost an element of choice. Exactly, yeah. Tony chooses to do that to himself. Uh, Murphy has this done to him. It is inflicted upon him. They won't let him die. It's noteworthy that in Robocop 2, the psychologist, who is clearly barking mad, uh, is under the impression that somebody of a relatively stable temperament probably wouldn't be able to take being a, a, a cop. Uh, sorry, being a Robocop. Uh, and so she says, well, seek out Charlie Manson then. That'll make perfect sense. There's nothing that can go wrong if we yes. seek out drug-addled Charlie Manson. Yeah, especially, bring me Tom Noonan. He's yes. creepy enough. He shall do. Scariest man in existence. And we'll make him into a super cyborg thing. There's nothing that can go wrong. Um, I w- I'm actually under the impression that somebody who wants to live, somebody who has a good life, somebody who is stable but for some reason their body has crapped out on them and they're going to die would possibly welcome the chance to beca- to actually embrace this uh, techno-evolution I think that would be veering off into realms that that movie, <laughs> that Robocop 2 and 3 couldn't handle Yeah, but that's what it sh- where it should have gone uh, but of course, they, they were not prepared to go down the cerebral route, and they they focused purely on the violence and the action and the um, that they, they they were looking at what happened, but not what really happened. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and that's so much the problem with sequels, especially in the nineties and in the eighties. They had no clue. These days they tend to see if they can try and keep on the writers and directors as long as they can to sort of see the films through and there, there is some semblance of, of through flow of thought throughout them. But this was back in the day when you just sort of go, right, that hot potato was good, now toss it to the next guy. And if not the next guy, whoever comes along and holds up their hand. It's not the way to make movies. Well, I gotta hand it to you. What do they call you? Murphy, is it? My friends call me Murphy. 
you call me Robocop. Oh, it also got two animated uh, cartoons. Oh, Lord. I, I, yes. I'm hoping for a terrible animated cartoon intro. Yes, you won't be disappointed by either Robocop of them. and the Turbo Police or something. Detroit, the near future. Officer Alex J. Murphy and his partner Ann Lewis fight to rid the decaying city of the criminal element which infests it. After being mortally wounded in the line of duty, Officer Murphy is outfitted by OCP with bulletproof titanium robotic parts and with computer-enhanced motor and sensory capabilities. He has become the ultimate super cop. There's nothing you can say to that, really, is there? The 90s sucked. (laughs) It really did. Yeah, I think in summation, see Robocop, ignore the other two and everything else ever to do with it. I don't know. Uh, Yep. I have an objection. Oh, Robocop versus Terminator on the Mega Drive. That was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) All right, they technically, not many people know this, that this film franchise actually runs to seven. Oh, my Lord. Tell us, sir. There oh, is... ye of the bottom shelf. <laughs> oh, ye who watches far too much and knows far too much. Agreed. There was a short-lived television series, Lee said about that. That I Better. not. Uh, but a little bit later, another company bought the rights and actually did... I'm not going to say... <laughs> They're brilliant, but they'd a, a good series called the Dark Justice series, which is four films. They had about a similar budget as the TV series, so don't go in expecting a lot. Uh-huh. But they actually tried to take Robocop back to its darker roots and did some more interesting things. It's set way, way, way after three. Right. To the point where Robocop is actually kind of obsolete in the sense his parts are. So and these are like TV miniseries? Yeah, for want of a better word. Like I said, don't, don't get me wrong, they're not anywhere near the level of one or two, but they're a heck yeah. of a lot better than three. And it's sort of a, a great big long story running through these four films. And I mean, if they ever appear on Netflix, they are worth your time to have a look at. You know, I wouldn't say actively go and seek them out, but they are wor- they are very much worth a look for people that were trying to take it back to sort of its darker tones. If you look at this page on the IMDb for Robocop Prime Directives Season 1, Episode 1, Dark Justice, there are two posters in the bottom left-hand corner, one for Robocop 2 and the next for Judge Dredd. We can't (laughs) not mention that this is most definitely inspired by the Judge Dredd comic series, which up until this point had not had a shit movie made, and then had one fairly soon afterwards. Clearly, uh, Dread has uh, a, a lot to do with the tone of Robocop. There's also a bit of uh, Batman The Dark Knight Returns in there, which came out only a year beforehand. And if you watch the more recent Dread 3D, that feels more like Robocop 1 than, again, Robocop 2 and 3 felt like. Yeah. Also, if you haven't seen Dread, what are you doing? Go watch it. It's really, really good. It is really, really good. Incredibly good. We don't want to oversell it. Judge for yourselves. Judge for yourself. (laughs) 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 And on that bombshell, I think that wraps up our Robocop show. If folks want to hear more of your voice, Neil, where should they go? They should, of course, go to the wonderful Gameburst at gameburst.co.uk, where we have our weekly news show, which I I now have taken over, and our roundtable, as well as quizzes and the wonderful replay show as well. Got uh, Portal 2 coming up, and to tie into this episode... February's replay game 
is Deus Ex Human Revolution. Oh, brilliant. That ties in really perfectly. In fact, I kind of want to go back and play Deus Ex. Oh, I'm going back to play Deus Ex because it's awesome. And Sharon and I have some potentially fascinating interviews lined up for the next few weeks, so stay tuned for them. So we will see you later for those. You've been listening to Digital Drift and Newell Newell Handshake handshake complete. Complete.